if the system was organized differently around the user of the system or the, the client, we could surely and very simply find many ways to save costs, but it's not set up for the client to, set, to save costs. It's right. set up as a business. Hello, and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this is season six. Yay! Oh my gosh. Uh, we were just quickly checking our stats before we started recording. And as of just very recently, this new year, we have passed our 23,000 listen benchmark, which is really exciting. Yes, very cool. And we're seeing those numbers continue to go up. So if yeah. you're listening now um, and you think you might not have looked at our content for the last five seasons, go and have a little look and see what you might like to listen to. Yes, please do. It uh, it all helps. And then I also, we, we should put in a plug, it, it also very much helps us if you go on iTunes and give us a rating and a review, especially if those are positive. <laughs> if you're going to leave a one-star <laughs> review, maybe don't bother. <laughs> um, but if you love the show and you want to help us out, that would be really, really helpful in, in uh, spreading the word about the podcast. Um, and then just before we get into introducing our first guest of the season, we want to mention other news this season will be uh, a bit of a revolving door of guest hosts and we're quite excited about that we've got some really lovely people who uh, are willing to come in and do this and, and tell you about what else is going on in the world of access to justice and social justice but the first person coming up is a returning favorite we're really really excited that graduated former RA of ours from NSRLP Ali Tajani who did such an incredible job within other news for so long even though he is super busy with his new articling position, he is happy to come back and do probably the first two episodes of In Other News. So listen for his lovely, familiar voice at the end of the episode. Yes. Great to have you back, Ali. Uh, now, getting to our first guest, uh, I think regular listeners, especially longtime listeners, will recognize the voice of our first ever guest, the wonderful Jennifer Mueller, who is has been a self-represented litigant, as you will hear more than once. And she is also a member of our advisory board. And we wanted to have her on again to talk about her recent experiences of self-representation. Yes, I'm afraid that uh, Jennifer, uh, having been our very first guest on our very first podcast, It Couldn't Happen to Me, finds this happening to her again. And Jennifer has been back in court resolving unresolved issues uh, around the care and upbringing of her daughter. And she's going to talk about them in our conversation in a few minutes. Just to remind you though, Jennifer is a schools counselor. She's worked for the North Vancouver School District now for the last 18 years. Um, and her background is in counseling psychology. She was, if you remember, a self-represented litigant in the Supreme Court of British Columbia for many, many hearings, um, including a nine-day trial. She represented herself in a nine-day custody trial. And 
these experiences were described to me by Jennifer in my original self-represented litigant study in 2013, and then became a subject for, for that first podcast. Jennifer has, uh, in the last 10 years or so, become uh, an active access to justice advocate. Not only is she a member of the NSRLP advisory board, she's also on the executive group of the Access to Justice BC initiative. And Jennifer talked with me shortly before the holidays about her latest journey down the legal rabbit hole. So Jennifer, thank you so much for talking to me this morning. It's always good to talk to you, but I'm first gonna take you back to September 2017, when we recorded our first ever episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with you. And you talked in an episode that we called It Couldn't Happen to Me. You talked about your wretched and miserable experience of having to represent yourself, including through a long custody trial. And this was after you had initially expended a very large amount of money in a very short time and concluded you, you couldn't afford any more. That was 2017, Jennifer. It's a little over three years ago now. And I know you would not have wanted then to have anticipated that you would find yourself back in court again. Um, but as your daughter has grown up and now has different and changing needs, which so many parents in this situation find, you have gone back into um, litigation to try to resolve those issues, those new and outstanding issues. This time, you represented yourself for a few initial hearings in which you, you were very effective and successful, but you decided you couldn't stand the stress of representing yourself again. And instead you hired a lawyer. In fact, two lawyers who've been helping you from the same firm. So can you begin by explaining why you made that decision? Good morning. And it's always lovely to talk to you as well. A couple of years ago, um, almost a couple of years ago, I found myself 10 years later in a situation where years had passed. And, and as you mentioned, my, my daughter's needs had rapidly changed. The whole landscape had changed over, over the, the past decade on all, all kinds of matters. And whilst she was growing up back in 2009, she was three years old. And of course, 10 years later, she was 13. And the difference and, in what a kid needs between three and- Yeah, and, and she's yeah. now going on 15. Mm -hmm. So of course, radically different needs. I couldn't bear the thought of going back to court alone mm -hmm. after what mm -hmm. had happened and what I'd gone through back in right. 2009. I, I had such acute anxiety over even the thought of that. Yeah. So that there were many outstanding issues that, that were not being tended to, orders were not being followed, and my daughter's needs were not being addressed. And I, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't bear the thought of having to take legal action. I tried everything I could to do otherwise, to resolve issues, to try to discuss the issues. It just wasn't possible. So, so the alternative in my mind was just let them go. And the years slipped by until there were so many 
glaring problems and issues that I, I, I just had to do. You something. couldn't ignore them anymore. I couldn't ignore them anymore. I just simply couldn't. And so to, to venture back into the justice system was beyond anxiety provoking. I think it was actually in some ways worse than the first time because the first time I didn't know what I would be facing. The second time I was acutely aware of exactly what I would be facing. And then I rethought it and I I took that leap and I I did go back and I was able to um, complete three chambers hearings on my own in court and they all went very well. I was successful at each one. But the third one was before um, a justice in the Supreme Court that for whatever reason just triggered such horrible anxiety in me, even though the outcome was favorable. I, I left the courtroom in tears and I could not get past the thought that I would ever have to go back. Um, I, I was- I, You've I reached was, your limit. I had reached my limit. I wasn't heard. I, it was as if I was a ghost in the courtroom everything was addressed to the other side's counsel. Who is represented by counsel. Yeah, the other side was fully represented. And I just didn't feel safe. It didn't feel Mm -hmm. safe to even be there. So I literally ran to my bank, knowing in my heart or my mind both that I wouldn't qualify for a loan. Um, 10 years had passed and I I'd pretty much done the best I could to financially recover from the first go around. Right. And much to my surprise, I did qualify f- for a, a quite a significant loan that was going to be really challenging to service, but nonetheless, I, I, I was able to, to acquire a loan so that I could hire a lawyer. Did you have any idea at that point, Jennifer, when you first retained a lawyer, how much ultimately this was going to cost you? Absolutely no clue. And I say that with shock, really, because I'd already been through it 10 years Mm. ago. So I factored in inflation. I kind of thought, well, you know, it it will be as much as that. And yet I looked at this situation as dealing with issues that had already been dealt with in the past. We were just Mm. needing an update. So we needed an update to parenting time and we needed an update on financial disclosure, simply because orders had not been followed um, around child support. So to me, they seemed not complex and and very manageable. Certainly I thought to to take care of within the context of the loan that I'd taken out. (laughs) Little did I know though. So it's been almost two years since you went back, as you say, it was a decision you made at, at Christmas coming up two years ago. So you have certainly, I know, achieved something in those two years with your legal representation, but I know that it is nothing near what one might think from the final price tag. So could you, first of all, Jennifer, just briefly for listeners, say something generically in terms of what outcomes you've achieved, both in relation to parenting time and support in the last two years? So what I have achieved over the past 23 months is an interim order for parenting time, which still perplexes me. Um, Why it's not final. Yeah, why it's not Mm. final. Um, I think there's all kinds of reasons perhaps that I didn't fully understand at the time of why the judge made that decision. 
but nonetheless, it is an interim order. And there is an, an order uh, for uh, child support and we still are waiting for a decision on the extracurricular, extraordinary expenses that wasn't wrapped into the child right. support hearing. Right, right. So that so you have an interim order, which I'm sure doesn't feel entirely stable since it's interim. Mm -hmm. um, and you have some progress made on child support and you're awaiting news of a decision around extracurricular expenses. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you share, Jennifer, what this has cost you in the last 23 months? Well, the last invoice was, um, when I tallied the whole thing up, was $89,000. And right now there's $10,000 still outstanding. So $100,000. So, yeah, just, yeah, $100,000. Which is not an amount of money that really anybody other than somebody who's very wealthy can afford or a corporation um, and so we're talking about i'm sorry to ask you this jennifer but we're talking about debt that's going to be around for you and for your daughter for a very long time correct absolutely absolutely and we have to remember that in family law cases we're talking about one person households yeah usually yeah. so it's it's a phenomenally expensive right. venture Right, because all this um, and and I do completely understand why why so many people just opt out of the system. It's not a it's not an option for most people, and when these issues need to be addressed, sometimes people you know wade in out of desperate need, needing to take care of these these issues. Some people in my circle have asked me, "Do I regret taking yeah. action? Do I do I regret?" getting that loan? Do I, do I regret going into this? And what do you say? The answer is absolutely not. These things had to be addressed. Mm -hmm. They had to be addressed. But the price tag is crushing. It's absolutely crushing. Now, I want to move this conversation to another area that you and I have talked about a lot as this has been ongoing. And obviously, I talked to many self-reps about um, who spend some time being represented because so many self-reps do at some point try to find what means they have to be represented. You have talked about the, the communication challenges, putting it in summary form, between lawyer and client. And you've worked with a couple of different lawyers. Um, and I certainly know that you see both individuals as, you know, competent and well-intentioned and so forth, but there has been an enormous amount of communication difficulty. And there have been times I know when you felt that you weren't really getting a response, which, which raises your anxiety. And that's something that many people, as you know, Jennifer, talk about. I have to be clear at, at the outset. I, I do not regret hiring the lawyers that I ultimately right. hired. There's, there is no more powerful feeling when you're trying to advocate for your child than knowing you have a legal expert right. there beside you and working for you. And even though this has been expensive, I would, I would you pay don't know it what else again. you could do. Yeah. And I would pay it over again because I, I had to have that help. I couldn't have done this by myself. I know that I could not have done this by myself emotionally. Maybe I could have muddled through it theoretically, but not emotionally. I could not have done it. 
was very striking to me, Jennifer, as you went through this, is that you are someone who is a lot more informed than many clients, family clients are. You have been through this process before. You're extremely well-educated. You work on access to justice issues. You know, I wouldn't like to say you're, you know, an expert in family litigation, but kind of close, right? Yet you still had such difficulty clarifying with your lawyers what you wanted them to do. You also, I know, negotiated a little bit that you could do yourself because you were constantly trying to keep the costs down mm -hmm. and to get some clarity around the costs. But even in your situation of having so much experience of that, you found that very difficult to do. There's no mechanisms built in to the lawyer-client relationship, really, where those conversations happen easily. Most law firms are traditional full-service law firms where that isn't even remotely an option for people to work on parts of their case. And right. I, I found myself repeatedly um, asking, could I write the affidavit and would I be able to do this or could I look through financial... In order to, to save money. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I was really fortunate um, with both lawyers. I had one lawyer for the parenting aspect of my case and another lawyer that was more of an expert with um, the child support and financial aspects. And, and I have to say both were open um, to me writing affidavits. Because I hadn't done this for the first time, I had had an experience 10 years ago, I went in asking the right kinds of questions mm -hmm. like, would we be able to be partners? Would I be able to do parts of it myself? And I was pleasantly surprised that initially the answer was yes, but that that was hard to actually realize as the case went along, that it was still a very uh, patriarchal, uh, this is my case. I am running it the way that I will run it. And there just weren't opportunities built in to save money. Right. I, so I you, and you were bucking the trend. I mean, you know, the, the pattern of legal services is, you know, I often call it feast or famine. It's all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And your lawyers, you know, are not accustomed to having somebody like you, Jennifer, who, you know, is both capable of and wants to do some of this themselves. But we know there are so many other people out there who are asking exactly the same questions. If the system was organized differently around the user of the system or the, the client, we could surely and very simply find many ways to save costs. But it's not set up for the client to, set, to save costs. It's right. set up as a business. There is such an obvious power imbalance here, of course, in any lawyer-client relationship. And I mean, you know, some, some people might say, well, that's fair enough. The lawyer is the expert. But unfortunately, you know, somebody in your situation who then feels so dependent, both practically and emotionally, on that legal representation is, is constantly, you know, worrying about offending the lawyer, asking for too much, you know, being a difficult client. I mean, I know, I know, first of all, that you are not a difficult client, Jennifer, but I know you went through all of this because you find yourself in this situation where you want to advocate for yourself. For example, you want to ask, what is this item on my bill? Mm -hmm. But, you know, you don't want to, quite honestly, piss 
your lawyer off. Absolutely. Or alienate them or have them misunderstand why I'm asking these questions or where I'm coming from. There is, it was so apparent, even just a few months out of the gate after hiring um, my lawyers, a disconnect about their real understanding of, of what this was like for me to service these kinds of bills. Right. Um, and I, I can only, my only logical um, think, you know, thinking around that is that many of their clients have pretty great means. Most, most lawyers are seeing clients that have the ability obviously to pay for them. And for me, it was a really, a really big struggle. Very, Even though, yeah. Again, just like 10 years ago, I was pretty up. I was very upfront. I, I told the lawyer what the size of the right. loan was and what I was going to be right. able to afford. So, um, yeah. Well, I think most people listening to this, Jennifer, would think that $100,000 is a pretty horrifying amount of money. There's not many people who can pay that easily. Um, and, you know, let me just kind of bring this back maybe to your work um, in British Columbia, where you're part of the Access to Justice steering group. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you've spoken publicly a lot in the last many years. You've been an important figure to talk, to talking about the cost of legal services and all of the difficulties that regular folks face. Um, and you've done that in a way that I think it's very obvious to people, you know, that you have certain advantages. You are very smart, you are very educated, um, you are white, you, you are able in ways to represent yourself that others might not have been able to, but still you feel in this uh, powerless position and this traumatic position when you were trying to do it on, on your own. So does this, what hope does this give you for initiatives like Access to Justice BC? What is your hope for the future? Well, my hope, first of all, I want to, to be really clear that I am hopeful of, of, for the future. I have to be hopeful. For well, that's the, encouraging. For change. Now, that being said, I'm not hopeful for litigants going into court completely unrepresented against parties that have counsel. I think that that's a a horrendously difficult and challenging experience and always will be. But I am hopeful that the system itself will be able to make changes that will be meaningful to litigants and access to justice in general. And we need to make the kinds of changes that are systemic systemic, not the little changes, not the little shifts, but the really big changes. And I know they'll come. It's just not happening now, but they will come. When we start to think about the system from the client's perspective, from the user of the system's perspective, we can't not but change. And and I'm really heartened when I think back all those years ago about our healthcare system, the parallels are glaringly similar. People couldn't, the average person couldn't access health care and changes were made so that we believed in Canada that that was important and should be accessible to all people. And I have no doubt that there will be a day where we collectively decide that all Canadians have a right to access to justice. I know that people listening today will very much relate to your story. Um, And I know it's not over. And I know we're going to talk again. Thank you so much for staying hopeful. 
that's what we have to do, but we have to also make sure that people listen to stories like you. And once again, thank you so much. Thank you, Julie. For speaking publicly about it. Thank you. Thank you for all your work. So it was, it was so interesting to hear this follow-up conversation. And I know because I, you know, check the stats on the podcast that that first episode with Jennifer is still one of our highest yeah. listen counts and it continues to go up. People still find it and listen, obviously, and find it very impactful. And you know, after hearing her experience in the first place, it's, I don't know, it's a lot of feelings to hear her ongoing experiences. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, the thing that she speaks about early on, and that is one of the most impactful things here for me is Jennifer's description of her, as she says, acute anxiety yeah. at even the thought of self-representing again mm-hmm. and court again, and saying that in a lot of ways, it was worse this time because she knew what was coming. Exactly. Um, and, you know, this is not, this isn't uncommon. We hear no. this very frequently, descriptions like this from self-represented litigants who talk about their ongoing anxiety and health issues, mental health issues around appearing in court. And that, you know, we've there've been descriptions of people saying they couldn't even drive past the courthouse in yeah, their town exactly. after their experiences and are having to get rid of their computer that they worked on their mm. case on. <laughs> um, and it's just a, it's a constant through line, the, the mental health toll that exactly. doing this takes on people. And, and even for Jennifer, who, you know, as we said in the intro, actually went through a nine-day trial mm. the first time. But as she puts it, and I, I know, Dana, this really struck me too, even the thought of doing this herself the second time when she knew what it would be like was just overwhelming to her. And so, as we've just heard, after some initial appearances on her own, she hired uh, two lawyers, one to um, manage the financial side of support, which was still unresolved. Um, her daughter is now a young teenager, and the other to manage the uh, the visitation um, issue. And I mean, it, it goes without saying that what is absolutely horrifying here is that Jennifer now has a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. And um, I, I told you, you know, when I listened to your conversation and I, I heard that, and even having spent now more than four years in this, working for this organization and hearing these stories and knowing what legal services yeah. cost, I still gasped aloud when I yeah. realized that she had spent nearly a hundred thousand yeah. dollars that yeah. she does not have. No, and and this will be debt that will follow her, you know, for many, many years, if not the rest of her life, affect the rest of her life. And, you know, I also was so struck, and anyone who listens to this, I think, will recognize that Jennifer is at pains here to talk about the fact that she has received some helpful services. Mm -hmm. This is not about dissing Mm -mm. her lawyers, but $100,000? I mean, none of us have that kind of money to throw around. And it just seems so terrible that in order for the family justice system at large to resolve issues as relatively mundane and in terms of right and wrong, obvious Mm -hmm. as giving child support to your child, 
that it has to have this kind of cost. And that, you know, this is such a, these are such common issues. How many people go through divorces, deal with custody disputes. It should, it's absolutely outrageous that it should cost this much to get these, these common legal issues dealt with. And it struck me anew. And again, like I know this, but the example really helps to bring it home hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that's, you're, you're choosing between saving for retirement Mm. and getting your legal needs met or buying a house and getting your legal needs met. Right. And, you know, until we have, we said this lots of times, some kind of administrative system for child support rather than this elaborate arcane adjudicative process with evidence and proof and all kinds of, 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 complex procedures you know we may never see anything different but that just doesn't make sense and Jennifer I know has talked to me a lot as you know we know Jennifer well now she's on our advisory board about doing this she's been going over whether she should do this for years because she wasn't receiving what her daughter required in child support and you know if this is the only way that you can get that addressed And it costs $100,000. And, you know, I think it's worth mentioning here for people listening, because they might have noticed this, that Jennifer actually did do some of this work herself. She did what we sometimes describe as unbundling. And um, with one of her lawyers in particular, there was an agreement that she would, where possible, do some of the drafting up of affidavits and so forth. So this is $100,000 and Jennifer did some of the work herself. And I know she did, you know, a not insignificant amount. And I think that that actually also highlights um, something that Jennifer alluded to, which is the difficulty of lawyers and clients communicating over any arrangement in which there is some kind of shared responsibility. I mean, I think she had expected there to be a much clearer impact on the costs. And I think the other thing that really came across from this that makes me so heartbroken is it was another example of lawyers being technically, you know, Mm -hmm. competent Mm -hmm. um, and not unkind. No, no. But not being able to really get her situation, not being able to really put themselves in her shoes in a way that you would think might lead to some different behaviors. And this is something that I've just spent the whole semester talking with my own students about and the importance of that. And realizing as I talk with my students that that is still counterculture to say that lawyers need to be those kinds of people and it shouldn't be. And it's almost like there's a time lag in the legal profession. The legal profession is still thinking that they are, you know, the knowledge gatekeepers and the most important thing about them is being as one lawyer once told me a brain on a stick. And, you know, Jennifer's story and, and so many other stories that we hear all the time really underscores that that's not what clients want from their lawyers. They, yeah. they can look some of this stuff up themselves and some of them, like Jennifer Muller, are extremely smart and can actually, you know, they can read some of this legal material themselves. They still need the expertise of the lawyer. She would be the first person to say that. Mm. But what they also need is that more effective communication, more understanding of their situation, and an ability to, you know, as you say, Dana, really figure out how to get the outcomes that they need um, in a way that will bring some kind of long-term stability to this family.
In Other News. Welcome back to the In Other News segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. We hope all of our listeners are staying healthy and safe, and that you've all had a good start to 2021. Since it has been a while since our last episode, we thought it would be useful to recap some of the big access to justice news stories from the past couple of months, in case you might have missed them. Of course, in the constantly shifting era of COVID-19, there are some news stories that are no longer newsworthy, so be sure to follow Julie and the NSRLP on social media for regular access to justice posts and tweets. For the first update, there continue to be significant changes to courts across the country, with courts slowly adjusting to creating a more accessible process, for example by conducting virtual hearings and being more accommodating to litigants. There's been a lot of interesting articles on these developments. In particular, former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin wrote a piece titled, Will COVID-19 Justice Become the Norm? In the article, the Chief Justice writes about how the justice system might unfold during and after the recovery effort, and discusses the idea of justice debt, which she describes alongside economic debts and social debts as specific pandemic-related impacts on our justice system, such as court backlogs, legal advice backlogs, backlogs of unresolved disputes, of rights denied, and harms inflicted. Another article that examines similar themes was by Michael Lesage, titled, quote, To restore court functionality in 2021, we must expect more from our institutions of justice, unquote. The article examines the roles of different members of Ontario's justice system, the Justice League, as he calls it, which includes the Attorney General, the members of the Civil Rules Committee, and the Law Society. The NSRLP is definitely interested to see how things will continue to shift. Looking outside Ontario, there have been interesting projects across the country, but some news pieces worth highlighting in particular are from British Columbia and Quebec. In BC, the Law Society has launched an innovation sandbox looking to expand access to legal services, inviting proposals from individuals, businesses, and organizations seeking to address the unmet legal needs of the province's citizens. Shortly after this, the Law Society also adopted a strategic five-year plan with key objectives. Within this five-year plan, the Law Society adopted an access to justice vision, which calls for it to, quote, reduce or remove barriers which are within the Law Society's control, understand the nature of the barriers that lie outside its authority and whether it has a role to play in overcoming those barriers, applying access to justice BC's triple aim measurement framework while developing policy, analyzing available data to take an objective approach in developing strategies, and listening to a diversity of perspectives on why some groups face barriers in accessing justice." Unquote. In Quebec, the legislature heard and passed Bill 75, which was assented to on December 11, 2020. The bill is titled, quote, an act to improve justice accessibility and efficiency, in particular to address consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic." Unquote. In addition to making changes to Quebec's Code of Civil Procedure, the bill allows law students working at university legal clinics to give legal advice and consultations under the supervision of lawyers and notaries, a development that would bring Quebec one step closer to what law students in the rest of the country can provide. This is an important step for both legal education and access to justice. 
In addition to the news stories above, here's a quick recap of some exciting successes from NSRLP during the past couple of months. First, you probably didn't miss this one, just because it's been on the NSRLP social media accounts nonstop, but in case you did, Julie had a virtual ceremony with the Governor General in December, where Julie was officially inducted into the Order of Canada. Second, the NSRLP was awarded the prestigious Fodden Award in 2020's Canadian Law Blog Awards for the collective body of work, including the blog, podcast, and ongoing resources. Third, NSRLP completed an external review of the Immigration Appeal Division, the IAD, which hears appeals regarding decisions on family sponsorship, removal orders, and permanent residency. The NSRLP ultimately made many interesting findings and a number of practical recommendations for the IAD to improve their user experience for SRLs. Fourth, NSRLP board member and self-represented litigant Jeff Rose Martland was published in The Lawyer's Daily, discussing the role of self-reps in the justice system, and adding to the dialogue about the label of self-represented and unrepresented. More importantly, Jeff notes that legal systems and members of the legal profession portray self-reps as a problem to be solved rather than the users of a service-based legal industry. The article made the rounds on social media and is a highly recommended read if you might have missed it. Last but not least, our Kamloops-based chapter, NSRLP West, has continued to expand and undertake new projects, which are summarized in a linked blog post. Be sure to check it out. We hope these accolades and initiatives continue to help draw attention to the struggles of self-represented litigants and further NSRLP's goal of supporting access to justice across Canada. NSRLP is consistently looking for funding to assist with that goal, and you can learn more about how to support the initiative at nsrlp.com forward slash donate. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.